This podcast is produced by Secure World Foundation, an endowed private operating foundation that promotes cooperative solutions for space sustainability and the peaceful uses of outer space. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. For more information, please visit swfound.org. Hi everyone, thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to see everyone here, particularly since some of you may have had issues with the registration form, and so it's a surprise to have you here, but we're very pleased to have you here nonetheless. <laughs> My name is Victoria Samson. I'm the Washington Office Director for the Secure World Foundation, a private operating foundation that focuses on cooperative solutions for space sustainability. A common perception is that China's increasing investments in space and its increasing reliance on space results in a zero-sum game for U.S. national security. That is to say, the more that China spends in space, the less secure the United States is. There is another way to perceive that. You could also argue that the more money China spends on space and the more reliant they become on their space assets, the more of an investment they have in space, and therefore the more likely they are to be looking for an international cooperative space governance. We'll see. So today we have a panel of experts to discuss this issue, specifically looking at China's ISR capabilities. We have, uh, starting from our right, Mark Stokes, the Executive Director of the Project 2049 Institute, Kevin Polpetter, the China Project Manager for the Center for Intelligence Research and Analysis at Defense Group, Inc. Then we have our own Brian Whedon, Secure World's Technical Advisor. Finally, we have um, Owen Cote, the Associate Director of the Space Studies Program at MIT. We'll be having them, these experts discuss China's ISR capabilities and what it means for the future of security in the region, and um, we'll be followed by a Q&A. And as well, we'll be having food at this event. The food should be arriving fairly shortly. Feel free to go back and graze at any point, um, whether you want to do it while people are talking or during the Q&A, it's there, or knock yourself out after the event as well. We'll have coffee, soda as well, just a few minutes. So with that, let's turn on to, uh, I believe Kevin will be starting off. Okay. Okay, uh, I'd like to thank the uh, Secure World Foundation uh, and uh, uh, Victoria and Brian for uh, inviting me here. Uh, so I look forward to it. I look, for, uh, look forward to a good uh, Q&A after, uh, after the talks are done. Um, I've been asked to talk about China's military space doctrine slash strategy. So what I'm going to do is, is give an overview of some pertinent uh, ideas, points on China's overall military strategy and then relate those to China's military space strategy or at least how they're writing about it. It's, uh, you know, what their actual space strategy may be is a little bit uh, opaque at this point, but we can learn a little bit at least from what they're writing about it. Um, so I'd first like to start off with uh, uh, China's uh, military strategy, which is called an active defense strategy, which China says is purely defensive. Now, what is, why do they call it an active defense strategy? Active defense means that uh, they will not be the first to attack, but if they are, they will uh, 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 defend themselves vigorously. Um, you know, they are not anticipating, uh, you know, a 1991 Iraq Gulf War, Iraq strategy where they dig trenches and they, and, you know, they just take the punches. No, they, 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 they want to go on the offensive immediately. Uh, however, the, the important thing you need to remember about the active defense strategy is that it's best characterized as politically defensive but operationally offensive. 
And what I mean by this is that there's a political cover where China will say that uh, 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 you know, they will not be the first to attack. However, when you start scratching the, the surface of that statement and you start look at Chinese writings on, well, when will they attack? What do they really mean by that? You, know, you, you start seeing discussions of uh, uh, you know, what co actually constitutes a first strike, um, what constitutes a beginning of, a, of an attack. You know, would deployment, uh, sufficient deployment of an enemy in, or potential enemy into a battlefield area, would that constitute a, a so-called strategic first strike? So you see that, that in, in, in a lot of Chinese writings that um, you know, it's not actually what they constitute a first strike, is not actually any shooting of weapons, any, any firing. It's actually just maybe deployments or actions which they can be deemed uh, 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 more offensive. Now, when, when you take a look at this, the, you also see that Chinese write a lot about a concept called gaining mastery by striking first, Xianfa Um And this has three main points. Um, it's, it can be, uh, uh, it can be uh, preemption, um, it can be surprise attacks, or, uh, you know, as we used to say uh, uh, in the Marine Corps, you know, using the natural aggressiveness of the United States Marine, you know, where you're just, you know, constantly, you know, going on the attack. Um, and, and you see that, uh, and this is tied, uh, uh, gaining mastery by striking first is, is tied very closely to the way Chinese see modern wars being fought. Um, you know, if you set aside the, the uh, you know, the uh, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom where we, uh, uh, you know, got caught in a, um, in a counterinsurgency uh, uh, campaign, if you take a look like the Falklands War, um, um, operations over Serbia, Yugoslavia, um, if you look at the 90, 1991, nine, excuse me, 1991 Gulf War, you'll see that uh, uh, modern wars are finished very quickly, usually in just one campaign. You know, World War II, you know, we had the North Africa campaign, took over North Africa, went to Italy, had the Italy campaign, and then we went to the Northern European campaign, and then we finished up, the, uh, finished up World War II in Europe. Um, not so with, uh, with modern wars. They're usually very violent and very quick. And so you need to be able to start off to a quick start and cause a lot of damage up front. Um, uh, furthermore, uh, if you wait for a, an adversary, let's say like the United States, to get locked and loaded on your border, um, it's probably too late, okay? Um, because the U.S. military will probably just steamroll over anybody who, you know, who lets us get prepared. So what you see is a lot of writings on you know, gaining mastery by striking first, um, maybe even during a deployment stage. And so what the Chinese say is that you need to gain the initiative at the outset of a conflict. Okay? Do not wait for the enemy to strike. Go ahead and strike first. Seize that initiative so you can take the fight to the enemy. Um, when they talk about seizing the initiative, you know, they're not talking anymore about uh, wars of annihilation. You know, they're not talking like a Korean War or, a, uh, or their Vietnam War type of battle where it's just massive attrition, human wave attacks, uh, that sort of thing. What they're now talking about is conducting targeted strikes against what they call vital targets. 
Um, now, what are vital targets? Vital targets are targets that, if destroyed or uh, incapacitated, could cause a cascade effect on the rest of the battle, which will then lead to victory. Um, so they're looking for maybe a target or a target set which can help them establish you know, a decisive victory from the outset. Um, and this is especially important, let me quote here, uh, where the PLA faces a powerful enemy equipped with high technology weapons and equipment. Now, what, what are those vital targets? Um, the Chinese are now focusing uh, a lot on information warfare. Okay, so they're, tar they're, they're, they're taking a look at targets that are involved in the collecting and processing of information. Information superiority is now seen as the main determiner of success on the battlefield. Again, not talking wars of annihilation anymore. We're talking about, you know, how, do we, how does China go out and hit the other side's C4 ISR assets? You know, command and control, communication nodes, reconnaissance nodes, that sort of thing. However, um, um, China also knows uh, its own strengths. Uh, it, it, it knows that it, it, you know, it's not the U.S. military. It can't just go out and attack everything all at once like we like to do. Um, so what you see in Chinese writings is that they talk about uh, uh, achieving information control over a specified time and location. So they're not looking at seizing information control from the very outset and continuing it through to the entire campaign. Um, if they could do that, they would very much you know, want to do that. Um, but you know, they, they know their strengths, and so but what they want to do is they want to go in, hit a vital target, open up that window of opportunity, strike perhaps a decisive blow, and then get out before the enemy has a chance to recover. Yeah. That's, all, that's all they're looking for. But it's, you know, considering their strengths and the types of weapons that they're investing in, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Now, when we're talking about information warfare, you know, we have various different things uh, that belong to information warfare, electronic warfare, cyber attacks, psychological warfare. But, of course, one subset of information warfare is space warfare. Uh, what is space warfare according to Chinese writings? Um, it's defined differently by just about everybody that you uh, read, but there are some basic tenants that, you know, there, so, so some common themes. One is, is that it's military offensive and defensive operations in outer space. Okay, these include attacks against targets in the air, ground, sea, or space from space, uh, attacks against targets in space from the air, ground, sea, or space, and attacks against ground segments. Uh, interestingly, um, the Chinese, uh, many Chinese writers, not all, but many, uh, classify uh, 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 ISR assets, uh, um, communication satellites, meteorological satellites, as space weapons, you know, things that we probably wouldn't normally, normally classify uh, as a weapon. Um, so, you know, taking into this context of achieving information control and that uh, 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 and that space warfare is a subset of information warfare. Um, you know, where does space play a role in, in this in, uh, uh, in this battle? And and 
granted, you know, these are the um, you know so-called Chinese space cadets who are writing. So, so they are going to uh, you know emphasize the importance of space over other types of operations. But what you see uh, in Chinese writings on space warfare is that whoever controls the Earth, excuse me, whoever controls space will control the Earth. Uh, common theme. Almost, it's almost like it's obligatory. You know, if you're writing an article or a book, uh, um, then you have to put that in. And this is based on space being the new high ground. Um, and uh, 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 China is looking at the way the U.S. military has conducted its operations and has seen the benefits that space provide to the U.S. military. And so. You know, they make assessments that 70 to 80 percent of U.S. intelligence collection is done uh, through space. Uh, they assess that U.S. relies on space for 80 percent of its communications. And also, you just get a general feeling when you're reading uh, Chinese writings that there's sort of this mythical capability given to U.S. space-based ISR, and that you know, if they're out driving a truck somewhere, you know, out in the hinterlands, you know, we know that they're driving that truck. You know, it's sort of like enemy of the state sort of situation. You know, too old? Am I dating myself? No. <laughs> I made a Wrath of Khan reference once, and nobody got it. I was just like, really? Am I, am I that old? Um, so, so they really see space as the primary, uh, uh, as the, I wouldn't say the primary field, but the most important domain. Because if you do not have control of space, then you will not be able to control the rest of the other domains. And without space, Conducting modern war is not possible. And so what the Chinese write because of this is that space will become a battlefield. Um, and what you'll see is you'll, you will see an evolution of space warfare, much like you have seen the evolution of air warfare. You know, World War I, uh, you know, you had the biplanes flying over the battlefield, maybe they were taking some pictures, and then somebody got the bright idea to take a, take a, uh, you know, a revolver up in, in there, and they started shooting at each other, and then they got the, you know, then they started putting machine guns on planes, and then, you know, by World War II, we had strategic bombers, you know, that, that sort of thing, and now we have, you know, and, and now we have B-2s. Um, they see the same sort of evolution of space warfare. Um, right now, we are in that beginning stage. We are back in World War I, where the biplanes are flying over the trenches taking pictures. Okay? Um, uh, you know, maybe we have a pistol. Maybe. Okay? But that's where they see it. But they see it progressing towards the era of dogfights um, uh, uh, and, and space-based uh, assets attacking uh, 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 targets on the ground. And because of this, because space will be contested, um, uh, achieving control of space will become the first priority of uh, any campaign. So what you see is that, you know, hey, at the very outset, let's start taking, out, let, let's start taking down some satellites. Now, if I can uh, switch gears here a little bit, talk a little bit about more of the offensive, uh, you know, shooting to kill side. But there is also a forcement, force enhancement side to uh, Chinese writings on space. And what I mean by this is, you know, how do they use these space-based ISR assets to conduct the information warfare, to, you know, to, uh, to seize the initiative. 
And here again you see that Chinese writings are heavily influenced by US writings on network-centric warfare. Um, this term was invented by uh, Admiral Sobrowski back in 1997. Um, and um, I can't find really a, a definition of it. I, I find descriptions of it. I don't never find a definition. Um, um, uh, but what it is is it's, um, it's connecting all of your forces together via networks, via computer networks, communication networks, and that this will provide a common battlefield picture to everybody on your side. So everybody from the lowliest prive all the way up to the four-star general will have access to a common battlefield picture. And that this, uh, this is, uh, uh, is intended to speed up reaction time of your own forces. Because if that prive can see the enemy coming through the pass, he doesn't need to call his lieutenant and say, hey, can I do this? He is supposed to take the initiative and go out and take his troops and stop that enemy from coming through the pass. So what we see is an emphasis on interconnectedness of linking up your communications from different forces, okay, multiple services, making it a joint, a truly a joint campaign, and and linking those through computer communication networks, and then fusing the information that you receive from your ISR assets fusing that, and then pushing the information out to the troops in the field. And of course, this is intended to improve attacks you know, against, let's say, Taiwan. You could also imagine, though they don't get specific in, in their writings, you could assume that, that when they're talking about uh, uh, this type of architecture, uh, that uh, you know, it could be used in an anti-ship ballistic missile context or a long-range anti-ship cruise missile uh, context. Um, on the counter space side, of course, whereas the force enhancement side is designed to improve uh, 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 China's uh, uh, ability to conduct operations, to improve what they call the, you know, what we call an OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act. Now, to speed up that OODA loop, they also write actually more about how to attack the other side's space assets to slow down their OODA loop. Okay. And in this context, space is viewed as a great U.S. strength. It's also viewed as a great U.S. vulnerability. Um, it is frequently written that attacks against components of uh, the U.S. space uh, architecture can debilitate uh, the U.S.'s entire information system. So by taking out uh, uh, the U.S.'s uh, uh, space assets, you can pretty much stop us militarily. But again, you know, they're looking to create a window of opportunity. You know, they're not looking to seize control for long periods of time. They're looking to go in, you know, uh, take out some assets for a short period of time, conduct the attack, and then get out. Um, so, uh, you know, this is sort of a down and dirty uh, look at China's doctrine and then how it pertains to uh, uh, space warfare, space-based ISR. Um, but you know, when, when when you know when you read these Chinese writings, you you get the idea, and you know it comes through loud and clear that China is not Iraq. Okay, they're not going to sit by and let things happen. You know, they are developing uh, a, a, a wide array of satellites, which Mark will, will talk to here in a, in a few minutes. Um, you know, and this is a this is definitely a culture that is thinking about how do we both develop these weapon systems and how do we use them.
It also comes through clear, at least in Chinese writings, that China wants to use space and deny it to others. And of course, this has uh, uh, you know, implications, uh, anti-access, aerial denial uh, uh, um, implications. However, um, what you don't see being written in Chinese writings on space warfare is as China becomes uh, 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 um, a much stronger space power as their military becomes more uh, dependent on space, they uh, inherit the same vulnerabilities that we inherit. Um, but, you know, they don't mention that. Um, uh, you know, you ha there are some writings on information warfare in general that do acknowledge that, but they say, you know, we have to go through this phase where we may be very vulnerable but we got to get through that phase, okay, and 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 get to a get to a place where we we you know we can use our information uh, uh, infrastructure, but do it securely. How you do that in space, you know, still remains an open question. So you know, this I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more later on. But it, it does open up vulnerabilities for China, and they don't seem to be addressing that. So with that, I will hand it off to the next. First, I'd like to express my appreciation for an opportunity to discuss one of my uh, one of my favorite topics. Um, <laughs> what I'll do is, uh, Kevin's done, done a good job about addressing uh, the uh, the broader sort of the bigger picture issues uh, in terms of doctrine and, and general uh, uh, requirements. Um, so, what I'd like to do is uh, use my time to take it down into the weeds, um, uh, deep into the weeds to a certain extent, um, by addressing three issues. One is. Uh, uh, addressing a bit more uh, the issue of operational requirements and looking with a little bit more specificity. And then uh, getting in a bit to organizational issues, both on the, um, uh, both on the requirements development side as well as the uh, research and development and industrial side. And then uh, wrap it up with um, some, some detail on programmatics in terms of specific uh, capabilities that, that China appears to be uh, uh, fo focused on. Starting off with um, at least some of the, sort of the operational requirements side, um, the, the, I guess one of our focus uh, focus areas here is on uh, uh, intelligence, surveillance, and, uh, and reconnaissance, uh, the ISR side. And what I tend to focus on mostly is their long-range precision strike and the role that uh, space-based ISR could play in supporting a uh, long-range precision strike capability. Uh, notionally, we, so for, for example, looking at an anti-ship ballistic missile, or ASBM for, uh, uh, for short, so a key part, it's good to have uh, situational awareness of things that are going on on a global basis and around the world. And that doesn't necessarily imply that if China's developing a space reconnaissance architecture that they have global, necessarily global, uh, global aspirations. But um, from my perspective, from on the long-range precision strike side, uh, the requirement exists to be able to maintain what I consider as somewhat persistent surveillance uh, of the area within range of their long-range prison strike assets. As, for example, an ASPM emotionally would be, let's say, 2,000 kilometers, roughly, uh, with, uh, with uh, what I would consider to be um, viable indications of, of uh, being able to extend that strike range out to, let's say, 3,000 kilometers, notionally on Guam, for example. But the key thing is to be able to uh, have some degree of persistent surveillance, or at least sufficient to be able to provide queuing data to a long-range prison strike asset, like an anti-ship ballistic missile. And what this would require, of course, would, would be a whole range of, of, of sensors, not just space-based sensors. And let me take just a second, to, just to 
I've always been curious about what is space. Um, that, that, uh, exactly. Uh, and I don't think there actually is a, a definition, what, at least an internationally legal definition of where space is. I, I guess there's <laughs> an international equivalent of the FAA that, that at least one no, notionally defines space as beginning at about a, a thousand, I'm, I'm sorry, a thousand kilometers, a hundred <laughs> kilometers, um, with uh, space being uh, that, that domain above a hundred kilometers. Um, and one could also look at, at, at an intermediate domain, uh, which uh, could be called near space, <clears throat> between, let's say, 220 uh, kilometers and, and 100 kilometers, and then the area below that being air, now, air uh, basically where air-breathing platforms would, uh, would operate. But, uh, so uh, the idea is to be able to have persistent surveillance, of which uh, space-based assets or satellites would be one, one, one component. Um, I've also been focused on, on near space uh, flight vehicles, which would be uh, uh, flight vehicles that would operate within that 20 to 100 kilometer realm. Uh, U.S. Air Force, uh, I'm a retired U.S. Air Force officer, um, so I have somewhat of a bias on sort of air and space uh, perspectives. Uh, but uh, U.S. Air Force had a whole series of writings about 2005 timeframe on the idea of high altitude airships. Um, and it's kind of, it seems to have gone by the wayside, at least in the U.S., but China has grasped this concept of near space flight vehicles with a passion because for persistent surveillance it gives you some of the attributes or some of the benefits that one would have from satellites in orbit uh, uh, but also um, but of course some, some other benefits of, of that persistence uh, being able to stay in an area uh, having a, for example low observability having an airship uh, as well as uh, sort of slow moving to be able to maintain uh, position uh, in, in, a particular, in a particular area but uh, for, in terms of on the satellite side, uh, they would also need, assume, let's say, for example, in a general war, thinking sort of the, the, doc, the, the doomsday scenario or the, or the uh, Dr. Strangelove thing in, in, a, full, in a full war, war scenario, that they probably would lose their static survey, uh, launch infrastructure, you know, that they have three, three launch sites, um, so probably lose that. And so therefore, operationally responsive space capabilities or, or, or launch on demand, in other words, being able to launch a, a small microsatellite <coughs> Into orbit uh, on, a, on a just a very quick notice uh, would be would be a requirement um, as, as well. But another aspect of space, of course, is being able to um, de, 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 uh, basically be able to in, uh, surveil and track other countries' assets in space, whether for space flight vehicles, whether they be satellites or whether they be ballistic missiles or, 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 or anything that would travel within that domain of uh, domain of space. And, and a key requirement for this is uh, would be space surveillance. Um, in other words, you got to, in order to be able to engage something, it seems like you have to be able to see it. And being able to see low observable targets in space, like U.S. satellites, uh, low observable U.S. satellites that could be intentionally minimized in terms of radar cross-section would be a requirement. Uh, and I'll get to some of the organizational issues. They, they've had a long space tracking capability, but these seem to be for cooperative targets. And a key area of research, at least that I've been interested in, would be how they uh, track, uh, surveil and track and uh, uh, non-cooperative targets with very low radar cross-section. Um, but, um, and then, of course, being able to have the ability to intercept uh, object, uh, uh, objects in space, in which they've proven some capability at least twice, uh, back in 2007 and then again in uh, uh, 2010. But that's just sort of an, an idea of a lot of operational requirements, what they would need. Looking at um, who actually develops some of the requirements, um, the, the, uh, the key organization that, from my perspective, that is responsible for developing the operational requirements would be the, the warfighters. Um, and, of course, people would normally think of the warfighters as being the Navy, for example, or the Air Force, uh, or the Second Artillery, their strategic rocket force. But it, it, it seems that on the space side, most of the operational requirements would be developed by their equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or their general staff department. 
And within the general staff department, there that's like a first-level department, and then there are second-level departments under the general staff department. For example, the first department uh, response uh, operate their operations their equivalent of a, of a, of a J3. Uh, these guys, under, under their J3 equivalent, they would have organizations like responsible for surveillance or survey and mapping. Why is survey and mapping important? Well, that's the BADO system, the navigation satellite system. Uh, the military PLA, my impression is that the PLA, General Staff Department, actually manages the ground, the ground component, in other words, taking that data from navigation satellites and, and turning it into operationally useful uh, information for, um, for, for, for users around, around the country. And they maintain a, um, uh, an infrastructure for, for uh, the, the data received from navigation satellites. Weather, for example, under the, their operations department. It's an operational support function. The second department, <coughs> beyond the first department, which is operations, second department is their general like DIA equivalent, roughly. A key organization underneath their DIA equivalent uh, is the Aerospace Bureau. Air, their, their, or the Space Bureau. Um, the Space Bureau, Space Reconnaissance Bureau are the ones that would develop the operational requirements and also operate ground stations for their reconnaissance, for their, uh, for example, electro-optical uh, satellites, as well as their synthetic aperture radar satellites. So that, that's a key organization. Uh, they also oversee, by the way, a, uh, a relatively recently established uh, unmanned area vehicle strategic UAV uh, unit just north of uh, Beijing. Another very important department, second level department, would be their third department. They're equivalent to National Security Agency, uh, NSA. Third department is their primarily, uh, like, just like NSA, responsible for uh, communications intelligence or comment. Uh, and of course, that one then leads to a requirement for uh, having a space-based communications intelligence uh, ability. And there appears to be some uh, movement in this area, uh, a comment package on a satellite piggybacked upon a weather satellite. Um, haven't delved into this much detail yet, but uh, it's interesting. Then, of course, they have the fourth department, which is dedicated to radar and uh, electronic intelligence, or ELAN. Uh, and, of course, ELAN is a very, uh, a former Air Force SIGINT guy, uh, somewhat biased on the importance of signals intelligence. Uh, ELAN is one of the most important sensors that one could have in terms of persistent surveillance. Um, and uh, they appear to have a, uh, uh, at least a, a basic architecture up for collecting electronic intelligence uh, signals, as well as jamming, uh, as well, ground-based jammers, for example, going after U.S. Um, uh, GPS or uh, synthetic or uh, kind of assets. But uh, this is uh, this, like on the operational requirements side, on the technical requirements development, key organization equivalent to G General Staff Department is what's called General Armaments Department. This would be roughly equivalent to our OSD uh, Acquisition Technology Logistics or OSD ATNL. Uh, these are the ones that would take those operational requirements and bring them down to a level of detail in which they could task or, or contract with uh, uh, design and uh, R&D organizations within their industry. Uh, their, space, uh, their, their space bureau under the General Armaments Department is subordinate to an organization that is responsible for information infrastructure. When the Chinese talk about informatization or whatever that, that term they tend to use, uh, space is considered to be uh, uh, a critical aspect of this overall emphasis on information dominance that, that Kevin uh, referred to. Um, and, and this organization, the, Air, the, the, the Space Bureau, Space Equipment Bureau, under their Information Infrastructure Department, um, is a critical organization and probably the ones that we would task uh, um, and, and, and uh, contract with uh, the defense industry. On the defense industry side, uh, they're equivalent to a Lockheed Martin or a Boeing. They have two main corporate entities, enterprises, large enterprises that have, let's say, roughly 100,000, 120,000 um, personnel. So large, large corporate enterprises that are broken down into what's called academies, uh, based in part upon the Russian, Russian model. Uh, the academies 
There's, uh, for example, um, on the, the two corporations, the only difference in the names for these things is the word technology and industry. One of them is called China Aerospace Science Technology Corporation. The other one is Science and Technology, I'm um, uh, sorry, Science and Industry Corporation, or CASC and CASIC for short. Within these two corporate in, uh, enterprises, uh, academies, in the center of each academy is a design bureau. And they're fairly well structured for uh, uh, designing, developing, and then producing uh, space-based uh, assets um, with sort of well-established lanes um, with some degree of competition, but, but more well-established. For example, uh, the key organization for developing, for designing electro-optical satellites would be under CASC, called the Fifth Academy, China Academy of Space Technology. And a different organization uh, underneath that same corporate or structure uh, responsible for synthetic aperture radar and ELINT satellites would be down in Shanghai, sort of a, a space cluster, a space uh, uh, design and development cluster and production cluster down in uh, Shanghai. And then uh, different organizations for launch vehicles. So this just gives a general, part, a general sort of concept of the organization uh, that's there. An organization, of course, is, is important in terms of looking at technology innovation and ability to leverage resources that resist within, uh, within, uh, within the country. In, in terms of looking at specifics on, on programs, uh, going in uh, a little bit deeper on the ISR side, there's five, you could look at the ISR as having five different uh, um, five different sort of aspects of ISR, including basically taking pictures of uh, of objects uh, um, from from space, electro optical. There appears to be a requirement to go down to about in terms of spatial resolution about maybe zero point two five meters, which is um, not I, mean, I assume the U.S. I don't know what our uh, state of the art is, but um, but it's not bad. I'm not sure if China is quite there yet, but that appears to be sort of a target where they want want to be able to get to um, significantly un, you know, sub meter uh, resolution. Uh, another uh, area of emphasis is on synthetic capture, uh, but the issue is uh, electro optical, of course, is that um, it's only it's daylight, daylight, uh, daylight only, and being able to image that, uh, only in good weather without, without cloud cover. To be able to make up for the, some of these shortcomings on the EO, on the electro optical side, uh, synthetic aperture radar is critical, um, which uh, is able to sort of uh, use of radar in, in space to be able to um, um, uh, image uh, objects on the surface, uh, 24-hour uh, day uh, and then all, all weather, uh, and they have a, a fairly well-established base for uh, for their synthetic aperture radar satellite. Um, starting off on the commercial, uh, mostly from the commercial requirement side, but gradually uh, appearing to have uh, dedicated military uh, SAR satellites that have been launched in the last uh, three or four years, and, and a growing architecture at that. And uh, this would be linked to the third uh, aspect of uh, ISR, which would be the ELANT satellite uh, uh, program. There has a long history of some experimental uh, ELANT satellites, uh, but uh, electronic intelligence is critical for, for example, if you wanted to track uh, uh, ship movements at sea, for example, Aegis uh, um, focused on electronic emitters. One of the best ways to do it, of course, is simply tracking the electronic Ships have to um, have to either communicate or, or emit a, a signal, for example, the radars, and having uh, assets in space being able to uh, track and identify, be able to look at the signature of a ship based upon its uh, electronic signature uh, is a key way to be able to uh, geolocate uh, objects or, or, or things that are moving at, uh, at sea. It appears that they have uh, uh, at least some initial uh, capabilities in, in, the, in this area. Communications intelligence, another side of it, um, as mentioned before, it appears to be um, some initial, uh, at least experimental packages uh, uh, in orbit uh, today. Something also been looking at is, of course, infrared, 
For, uh, we have uh, an old defense support program satellites to be able to uh, detect the heat generated by ballistic missiles upon, uh, up shortly upon launch. Um, and no smoking gun on this one yet, but there appears to be significant interest in uh, fielding a missile, ballistic missile early warning uh, uh, capability that has implications, of course, for nuclear doctrine. Um, not, one should make the leap automatically towards sort of a launch on warning uh, a shift that could be driven by new technological breakthroughs, but it's something to be able to, to, to look at. Um, in terms of uh, other things, in terms of operational uh, capabilities or, or uh, programs on, this, on the launch infrastructure, a key indicator would, uh, it, it makes sense if they want to have an operational responsive uh, capability to be able to get uh, uh, satellites up in space. They want to move toward a uh, solid fuel launch vehicle capability. Right now, their launch vehicles, of course, uh, their, their family of launch vehicles are, are, are liquid fuel. And there does appear to be uh, a significant interest, um, if not even at, at least um, experimental systems, uh, launch uh, solid, solid fuel launch vehicles for the Kai Toljer KT uh, series. One of the problems, though, in looking at the KT solid fuel launch vehicles based on the DF-21 uh, ballistic missile variant, uh, is that it doesn't it doesn't look like there's a dedicated military organization or operational unit. Uh, that has integrated these KT solid uh, launch vehicles. However, it still needs to be uh, looked at in some detail. If it's going to be, uh, in terms of solid fuel uh, launch vehicles, it makes some sense for them to be uh, sort of an additional add-on capability given to their ballistic missile forces, but something that needs to be watched a little bit more. And one final aspect of, uh, of, of the space, of course, is denying uh, potential adversaries the use of, of space, and this gets into that um, scales, scales um, uh, underneath that Surveillance organization that's established in Nanjing. And the space debris, of course, could sincere some concern over space debris, but of course, space debris being able to track objects, for example, that are about five centimeters in, uh, in size, size of a, maybe a grapefruit, um, and find some of them able to uh, surveil and track satellites or objects in space as well. But um, with that, I'll uh, wrap it up and turn it back over to you. Hi, I'm, I'm Owen Cote, and I'm from the MIT Security Studies Program, not the Space Sorry. Studies Program. I know that... Space we, on the Brain. Space on the Brain, that's right. Um, so uh, uh, thanks for inviting me, and um, I'm going to um, come at this more from the technology side rather than, say, from the China side or from the U.S. side. Um, and I've been asked to talk particularly about the role of um, space in the Chinese, as the terminology now says, the A2AD capability, the anti-access area denial, or what we used to call sea denial back in the Cold War days. Um, so, what is the role of space um, in that in that in that in that mission? And I'm, I'm going to expand my writ a little bit to talk about the role of space, if any, in our response to that problem. And I'm also going to take up uh, the sort of uh, comments that Victoria made at the beginning about what some of this will mean for, um, I don't know what the right word is, but uh, sort of say stability uh, in space or, or, or a space environment that is less uh, focused on, on um, things like ASATs and stuff like that. Um, 
So the first thing I'm going to do is talk about this, uh, the Chinese, this, this question of a China, Chinese A2AD capability, a, a capability that for our purposes we can say is designed to keep American, well, it's designed to, to convince people in the region that American aircraft carriers will be reticent about operating in the areas they have to operate in if they're going to protect those people were they to get into it with China. Um, and the, the, the reason why I say it that way is that obviously this is about perceptions and in that sense they've already achieved their objective on some level. And the, the degree to which perceptions matter compared to the technological background, it, this is a really dramatic case of, you know, I think that the perceptions are pretty far ahead, at least right now, of what the reality is. But if you were going to make that uh, more of a reality, um, you've got the, you know, what they've already, and let's focus on this anti-ship ballistic missile that Mark talked about. Uh, it's not the only thing that's part of the, this, this new uh, A2AD capability, but it's the newest in the sense of uh, they're the first people that have really tried to do this. Obviously, submarines are a part of this package of A2AD. They've much less invested in traditional land-based aviation like the Soviets did, but they have a little of that. But let's focus on the anti-ship ballistic missile capability because I think that will be the one that will probably drive Chinese activities in space more than the, more than the other areas, and it's also the most challenging mission. Um, so as Mark said, um, you know, China's heavily invested in um, imagery satellites of both types, this initially EO like we did in the now SAR. Now, I, I would point out that um, um, it's important when we talk about space uh, to be specific when we're getting this specific about missions, to be specific about what part of space. So let me talk just for a second about just some broad uh, categories to think about when you're talking about space. There's, there's low Earth orbit and then there's everything else as far as I'm concerned, or geosynchronous orbit, medium Earth orbit. Low Earth orbit is fundamentally different from, from the other orbits. And low Earth orbit is um, where we'll be talking about uh, when we talk about China and, and A2AD, right? Um, the basic idea in ocean surveillance, which is what you're talking about if you're trying to deal with aircraft carriers, is that you're trying to find moving targets um, in, the, in the ocean surveillance case against a, a relatively uncluttered background compared to the land. Um, but they are, the targets are moving and it's over a very broad area and there are no roads and there are no whatevers to canalize movement. So there's complete free freedom of movement over the surface that you're interested in. And so imagery satellites, whether they're uh, electro-optical or SAR, are not very useful for finding ships. Uh, you can use them to go take a look at a ship that you've already discovered, but they're not very useful for finding ships. And the fundamental reason is because, as, as uh, you, know, you all know, most of these, these satellites are designed to create pretty high-resolution images. To do that, they have to do what any camera has to do, which is to focus. And if you focus, you narrow your field of view. The whole point about getting up in the low Earth orbit is to expand your field of view. And so what happens is that you know if you're in, a, you, you're in low Earth orbit and you do a pass over an area and you're an EO satellite, you have to be told where to look very specifically within that area to take the picture you want to take, and you can't see anything else. So that's not very good if you're trying to find something in that area and there's no clues to where it is. And so that's why in every case where people have um, wanted to solve this problem, They've had to basically, it used to be eyeballs in airplanes, but I mean, if you want to solve the problem on an ocean-wide basis, um, you have to go to radars, 
Um, you have to go to the kind of radars that can search wide areas. They're not imaging radars. Um, and you have to uh, get, you know, you have to get altitude. And you can, the best way to do it is from the air. It's from an airborne platform, and that's how we do it. Um, it you lose a little bit of uh, field of view because you're lower than low Earth orbit, but you're much more powerful. The radar is much more powerful. Um, and you know you can you, you, you move you can you, you, you can move at a reasonable rate, but you can be persistent if you want to. Um, if you're in low Earth orbit, you know the laws of physics tell you how often you can come back and look at the same place. If you're in an airplane, you can decide to hang out. Um, if you want to search the Philippine Sea, the best way to do that is with five airplanes and P3s, Global Hawks down the road. That's the way. That's the best way to do it by far. Now, China's made a decision in their, their posture at sea that this is not the route they're going to take. They're not even in contest control of the air over the sea, right? Uh, this aircraft carrier that's coming along is, is uh, not even close to beginning that process. So they've understandably made the decision to go into low Earth orbit to try to do this, which is exactly what the Soviets did in the Cold War. So if, for those of you who have a memory of it, the Soviets did two things, one of which the Chinese apparently have already started to do, which is that they deployed E-Link satellites in low Earth orbit that would pick up on radars on ships as long as they were emitting. Um, and then it also developed a radar satellite called Rorsat that would take it, it would be basically a blob detector looking at the horizon along the water and detect the profile of the ship and could therefore detect roughly the length of the ship unless it was bow on um, and unless the seas were really uh, rough so you can start to see some of the problems. Um, and these two were to operate in tandem. Um, the radar satellite uh, allows you to detect the non-cooperative target. Um, the EOR stat hopefully allows you to identify that target. It also gives you ability to reduce the area of uncertainty of it, but it doesn't really give you great targeting information if it was a lone satellite. Um, the Chinese have developed this triplet, we think. They started to do that that we did when we got into this business, and that gives you a little bit better location, but it also gives you the ability to locate multiple ships in one pass which is really what that capability provides. But the point is that um, we, we've had a little experience with, with this approach to ocean surveillance. I'm not going to get into too much. And let, we can certainly do in the Q&A about how successful the Soviets were and how we dealt with this problem. But I will say that it looks like the Chinese are going down this path. And that would mean that the next step would be for them to try and develop a radar satellite, which I don't know if there's any evidence of that. That's a lot harder than what they've done so far, but you could see that coming down the road. So I do see a deepening investment in low Earth orbit uh, for this purpose coming, to, uh, coming down the road uh, from China. But I, I want to emphasize that, that the part that is relevant to the, the, the tough part of the problem is not all the imagery stuff that they've already developed, which I think is designed to look at airfields and things like that and see, oh, are the are there C-17s there? Are there V-2s there? Are there whatever there? That kind of thing. Because you know where the airfields are. So, you know, it's not a problem to tell, tell the imager where to look. Um, now, this might imply, as Victoria was saying, that, you know, the more you invest in this medium, you know, the more you have to lose if you decide to attack the other guy's stuff that's in that, that's operating in that medium. That's just obvious, right? And so there's very much, there's very good reason to believe um, that this may actually happen on the Chinese side, that in some sense uh, th this great investment that it seems like they're preparing to make and to some extent which they've already started to make um, could indicate that they would become more wary about certainly starting uh, you know, a kind of struggle for control of low Earth orbit using ASAPs and stuff like that. 
the, the, my second point, though, is to, to not get too excited yet. Um, <laughs> because I think there's another part of the story, which is that um, if you look at the U.S. military, and particularly if you look at the U.S. Navy, I think you'd be shocked to discover how little we depend on low Earth orbit for our military stuff, our naval stuff. Okay, I already told you before about this historic investment we have that we're only going to expand dramatically in persistent airborne surveillance. Right, that we're going to buy something like forty—they're not their global hawks, but the Navy calls them BAMPs. Um, and you know, th th we are going to—that is how we are going to develop our, our picture of the surface. Uh, low Earth orbit has pretty much nothing to do with ASW, and ASW is probably you know the main thing that we worry about, at least in the near term, when we talk about A2AD. Um, low Earth orbit isn't going to have much to do with uh, you know countering an ASBM. I mean, we're going to detect the ASBM with IR satellites, but there is geo. What low Earth orbit has done for us is correctly is uh, as. Um, Mark was saying about what the Chinese believe. It's a, it's a peacetime intelligence thing as much as anything. And if you look at the way the satellites are designed, they're designed to measure things very precisely so that you can monitor things like salt treatments and stuff like that. That was that era, right? We had to measure the diameter of the silo to inches, and we had to make sure that they weren't cheating by building bigger missiles and so on and so forth. And you know, there's a lot of uh, tactical utility just in imagery that's like a meter or two. Commercial space may actually um, start providing tactically relevant imagery like that to the. But mostly, what we get, for example, the war on terror, we're getting all that from persistent airborne. Now, some of that's going to drop out. I would argue that the middle tier that's dominant now, the, the predator types, that's going to drop out because they're not viable in that environment. But the very large, high endurance ones that can stand off, the sensors are powerful enough to stand off, and then also. Something that's coming down the road is very small UAV things that are that are persistent that can do some of these missions that will remain relevant. But Leo is just not, I think, going to be a, a huge factor in the U.S. approach to dealing with this A2AD challenge. So if you can see where this is going, uh, and it's where we went already in the mid mid to late 80s, which is it really might be the U.S. that becomes the big threat. Uh, to this kind of view of stability in, in space, or at least in uh, in low Earth orbit, where the where the where the ASAT uh, option is most most evident right now, um, and I think that it actually uh, uh, could get worse before it gets better, because there's a lot of ways in which once we invest in this persistent airborne surveillance, I think we're going to discover a lot of other things that we can do with it that will continue to sort of reduce our dependence upon space, in this case of all types, and here I'm talking about communications. Um, you know, we have a massive uh, latent vulnerability in terms of our, we've become completely dependent upon commercial wideband satellites. Um, satellites that are designed to provide a high data rate uh, signal and that have actually no jam resistance built in whatsoever. Um, that's how we basically operate our predators, right, using those kind of satellites. They can be shut down in an instant uh, by anyone that has any kind of electronic warfare capability. Uh, the fundamental way to deal with that problem is not to stay in space. It's to do airborne relays. And you know, we've already, we've already, we've already done this on some level for other reasons. 
Uh, I don't know uh, how many of you uh, remember or know Bert Rutan, who, uh, you know, the famous aircraft designer who's done all sorts of interesting things with airplanes. One of his ideas back in the days when all those low-Earth orbit uh, internet providers like Teledesic were crashing and burning, he came up with this idea of just parking airplanes at 60,000 feet over urban areas. And I mean, that's the best satellite in the world, right? As long as, you, as, long as, it's, as, long as it can survive. And see, the interesting thing about the AD problem is that we own the air where the problem is, right? It's not like being over land. It's not like being over the heart of a hostile country in the middle of their air defenses. We own the airspace. Um, so in terms of uh, the dependence on communication satellites, which are physically probably survivable up in geosynchronous orbit, I think we're going to discover that airborne, air, air persistent air, airborne approaches to the problem are also going to address, help address that. So in that sense, I think the problem gets worse because our self-deterrence you know, from maybe trying to do something about this problem that poses a significant threat to our carriers uh, uh, you know, may get worse before it, it gets better, if it gets better at all. And I suppose I'll... I'll stop there. Great. Okay. Well, I'd like to try and kind of summarize uh, some of the main themes that have been talked about by the previous three speakers and, and pull it back a bit uh, to ask, so what? You know, what does this mean for the big picture? And in particular, uh, you know, we've, we've seen through the other three presentations that uh, China is investing uh, significantly uh, in space capabilities and, all, and in particular space-based ISR capabilities. Uh, and these capabilities do play a, a, a major role in their strategy for both national security as well as becoming a regional power um, and at a, at a more tactical level in their A2AT strategy for you know, maritime and of course Taiwan Straits. And this represents a major shift from uh, what they are now towards more of a space power and a space-faring state, and a future where potentially they have much to lose in space. And so the question is, what impact might this shift have on their approach to various space security initiatives, uh, in particular their, their you know, relationship with the United States? From the U.S. perspective, uh, we habitually see China as a threat to U.S.-based capabilities. But the flip side is also true from the Chinese perspective. You know, as was discussed, their approach to uh, their space development space capabilities is very similar to how we developed our space capabilities and how the Russians in this, uh, developed theirs. Uh, relatively small number of platforms, for each providing specific capability, little to no surge capability to replace lost assets, and, and these satellites the Chinese are building are vulnerable to the same things that the American satellites and the Russian satellites are largely vulnerable to. And that would primarily be hit-to-kill kinetic interceptors, uh, dazzling, jamming, uh, blinding, and a variety of, uh, of, of other techniques that are not you know, permanent kills. And while China is developing their anti-satellite technologies, uh, is demonstrated by both the 2007 and 2010 uh, ASAT test, uh, the U.S. is also developing capabilities uh, that could be used for ASAT. And so you have, you know, the U.S. is, is tested uh, an Aegis air, uh, seaborne system against a satellite, demonstrated a capability, 
and in the process of deploying those same capabilities throughout the Pacific theater as part of our missile defense strategy, and in the future upgrading those capabilities to uh, potentially be able to, to intercept missiles and other things at much higher altitudes uh, than what was seen with burnt frost. Uh, and so, you know, from the Chinese perspective, even though the U.S. has said that that was a one-time thing, just like we have no way of verifying China's capabilities or intentions, and thus must look after what capabilities might they possess and how what might be, we counter those. Uh, same that goes through for China. You know, they're not going to from looking at from their own national security picture. They're not going to be able to say, well, the U.S. says they're not going to use this to attack satellites, so therefore we don't have to worry about it. They are going to be concerned about it. And so as China develops its space capabilities, um, the strategic picture between the U.S.-China relationship is not quite the asymmetric actor with nothing to lose against the space power that has everything to lose that is commonly uh, you know, brought up in discussions. Uh, certainly at this moment in time, the U.S. and China are not pure competitors in space. But over the next several years and the next decade or more, China is going to move towards becoming more of a peer with, uh, with U.S. and space capabilities. Um, and so how is that going to change the relationship? There are currently... Uh, three diff uh, major initiatives going on within the international security realm on the context of space security. Uh, and so I also would like to talk a bit about how this perhaps changing perspective in China might impact those. Uh, and those three are the uh, United Nations Committee on the Peace Leases of Outer Space has recently started up an agenda item entitled the Long-Term Sustainability of Space Activities. Uh, and they've created uh, four expert working groups that are looking at things such as space debris mitigation, uh, uh, space debris uh, national implementation mitigation guidelines, uh, space situation awareness data sharing, safe space operations, space weather regulations and guidance for new actors. Uh, and, and this reflects an emerging trend among many of the space powers uh, to think of space in terms of an environment that needs to be protected. Uh, to ensure that we can continue to use it in the foreseeable future. Uh, as, and and it's, it's in somewhat response to the threats of space debris and space weather and, and uh, radio frequency interference and, and those things that have cropped up and become quite an issue. The second initiative uh, is the European proposed International Space Code of Conduct, which is a proposal by the European Union uh, to create an agreement uh, non-binding, to establish basic norms of behavior to enhance the safety, stability, uh, security, and sustainability of space. Uh, it is proposed by the EU, uh, but the goal is that it would be open to all states and it would be a, an international initiative. Uh, over the last year, the EU has been gathering input and comments from many states. Uh, word is there currently redrafting it, and the goal would be over the next six months, uh, maybe a bit longer, to hold some regional dialogues on the code uh, to gather more input uh, and then convene an expert group to revise the draft and open it for signature. 
the third initiative is the UN Group of Governmental Experts, or GGE. Uh, GGEs are not new. Uh, they periodically crop up within the UN system. This one was proposed uh, and, and primarily by Russia within the UN First Committee, and the idea would be to create uh, a, um, a group of, go of governmental experts, uh, approximately 15, that would propose, re make recommendations on outer space transparency and confidence building measures uh, back to the First Committee. And so in looking at China's approach to these three initiatives, the question becomes, do they share the same perspective on the space domain as the others, as Europe, as the United States, as Russia, that are promoting these? Um, and I think the answer is, for the moment, not necessarily. Because China's uh, engagement with these three initiatives and others has been mixed. Uh, in some areas they've been supportive, in some areas they've not. So for example, with the, the Copius group on long-term sustainability of space, uh, the Chinese delegation in Copius has been very supportive and active in the discussions. Uh, and uh, they are playing a, a, a helpful role within that environment. But I would not say that that is reflective of all of China, uh, and there probably is multiple views on this. I mean, the, the, it's the foreign ministry that is involved in Copius and not the PLA. Uh, and I, and I'm, I would be curious to see whether or not the PLA even knows there is something called long-term sustainability of space. <laughs> and from their publications on doctrine and policy that we talked about earlier, uh, my take on it is that the, the Chinese national security community is looking at space in very much the same way the U.S. military did 10, 15 years ago uh, with the Space Vision 2020 and space is the ultimate high ground and the U.S. needs to control and dominate space in order to you know, play a key role in national security uh, goals. We have shifted from that uh, in part because the vulnerabilities of that strategy have been exposed by things like the 2007 ASAT test and, and other recent developments in space. But I'm not quite sure that China has caught up to that. Uh, in some way, their, their thinking and their perspective on the space domain is lagging. And I would say this is not unique to China. This is a, uh, something we're seeing in, in all of the emerging space powers. Uh, India, Brazil, and others, they all are, as they're, as they're moving from mostly civil, scientific, uh, socioeconomic benefit uses of space to more of a national security military uses of space. Uh, they're moving along the same path uh, in some cases the US and, and, and Russia did, but they're lagging. Uh, my personal experience uh, in October, uh, we held a workshop in Beijing in partnership with Beihong University uh, and a couple others to on, the, on space sustainability. And the idea was that there are all these discussions going on in the U.S. and Europe on some of these topics like space debris and space exploration, data sharing, and space weather, but in many cases the Chinese are absent. Uh, so we, uh, for the second year in a row, have done a workshop in China that brings together people from industry and academia uh, and, and some other members of, of the Chinese space uh, collective to bring, get them more aware of these topics and kind of gauge uh, what their perception is. And uh, 
what we learned was that they're very interested in them, but they're very new topics. It is, you know, space debris mitigation uh, is, be, is an emerging topic in China, and they are working on national regulations to implement debris mitigation guidelines, uh, but it is not at the level of, of development or of at, um, uh, or uh, it's, it's still lagging what's going on in the U.S. and Russia and, and particular Europe. Within the, uh, in context of the GGE and the Code of Conduct, uh, China has been very much less supportive. Uh, in 2008, Russia and China jointly proposed the, uh, a treaty to the Conference on Disarmament on the prevention of the placement of weapons in outer space. And since then, China has insisted that that is the option on the table for discussion. And everything else is, is very much a distraction from that treaty. Russia has recently softened that position uh, which we demonstrated through their backing of the GGE. Uh, China is still very much saying we should be talking about the PPWT, uh, but very recently has softened it somewhat, saying, well, we can discuss supplemental measures, such as the potential GGE or the Code of Conduct. But even within the Code of Conduct, uh, they, they have provided feedback to the Europeans, and their comments were along the lines of strip out all the space debris stuff and strip out all the notification measures, which are generally not very helpful to the process. So some recommendations perhaps for the future. Uh, certainly this discussion on sustainability, norms of behavior, and space security in general, it needs to include China as an active participant. They own 30% of the space debris, they're launching as many new satellites as anybody else, uh, and uh, they are becoming a space power. And historically, we've not done a great job of including those conversations. Uh, one case in point is there's been a significant discussion within the U.S. and Europe recently on active removal of debris objects. In 2009, uh, just out here in Virginia, DARPA and NASA held a conference on this topic. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, there was one in Moscow in April 2010, and then in June 2010, Kness held one in Paris. China was not present at any of those three meetings. And I think that is important because if they, you know, if they're absent from the discussion, and there are some significant dual use and transparency questions with an activity such as active removal, that could pose some problems. And as was hinted at a couple of times here, I think you're starting to see some similarities potentially between the U.S.-China strategic relationship and the U.S.-Soviet Union or U.S.-Russia strategic relationship, uh, in that. You know, as China moves more towards uh, a more more of a space power and more of a peer in space, um, how does that change the relationship? Both sides might end up relying on space. Both sides have something to lose. Uh, and as we learned with the Soviets and the Russians, it is possible to have dialogue with an adversary, and you do earn you do get good things from such a dialogue. You build familiarity, but you can also collect some nice intelligence. There are three major challenges I'd like to mention briefly in closing with all this. Uh, one is not to underestimate the lag between China's perspective and that of other emerging space powers on what the space domain, what the important things are, and the rest of the space-faring states. Uh, I think that is an important thing whenever we come to discussing a topic if the U.S. and Europe don't share the same goals as China and India and Brazil and others, 
um, then it's very difficult to build consensus and get constructive dialogue. China and many other emerging space powers lack a cohesive interagency whole of government approach to forming policy on many topics, but in particularly space. Uh, you know, in the U.S., we do have this burdensome interagency process uh, that, do, but it takes into account perspective from many different actors within the U.S. government and also industry on forming policy issues. Uh, there are very few other countries that have that sort of a process. Uh, and so you may have China's foreign ministry out talking about something regarding the space, but that may not be reflective of the whole of Chinese government. You may have the PLA out talking about something, giving a speech on space, and that may not be reflective of what foreign ministry thinks. And finally, I would just say that it's politically easier for both sides to demonize the other to bolster national support than it is for them to work together constructively. And that is just a function of the politics uh, that needs to be worked through. And with that, uh, I'll conclude and open up the Q&A. Okay, uh, thank you. That was really just a fascinating panel. I'm sure there's a lot of food for thought in it. Um, I would ask that you would, when I call on you, that you wait for the microphone and that if you could please identify yourself and your affiliation, appreciate it. Turn off that question back. I would agree with that comment. Um, I will comment a little bit on that, but I would also open up to the others. I know Mark probably knows a bit more about the specifics of, of the multiple days within China. Um, I, I completely agree, and we've seen this through our dealings with China. Uh, Secure World, we primarily have had a relationship with the Chinese Academy of Sciences uh, and with Beihong University and a couple of the universities that even then there's not, among, not a lot of crosstalk there. I would add another uh, another issue, and that is uh, the issue of disciplinary silos. Here in the U.S., there is quite a bit of churn between the engineering, policy, law fields, or at least we interact on, on a regular basis. Uh, and there is some cross-pollination between those different disciplines. Uh, my experiences in China and, and other places, that is not happening there. Uh, it's very much silos of engineering and technical people and policy people and foreign relations people and lawyers. And they rarely ever interact, let alone have cross-educational opportunities. 
And so to your, to, to your point about there being multiple they's in China in terms of governmental entities, whether it's uh, the civil service, whether it's the PLA, whether it's the party, um, I would also add there are multiple they's in terms of disciplinary groups. And just because you have involvement with engineers within China does not necessarily mean they understand any of the technical, or sorry, any of the political or legal issues to go along. There's some thought, there's some thought uh, or expression that when the uh, weather satellite was shot down, that this was uh, a PLA act and it really wasn't coordinated uh, through the government. Uh, would you comment on that? Um, the true experts on that would probably be Greg Kulaki and Jeffrey Lewis. I know they've published some things on it. In reading their thing, uh, their published materials, uh, it appears it was coordinated through the Politburo, but uh, I believe Dean Chen made the comment that at the time the foreign minister was not actually sitting on the Politburo. And so that might be some indication of why the foreign ministry appeared to be completely in the dark uh, and unaware and, and the delayed response. Um, so yeah, I, I think that is probably an example of, of this uh, lack of a whole of government uh, or a silo approach to their thinking. So on the issue of, um, of diversity within government <clears throat> on, on space issues, uh, that's, a, that's a valid, valid point. Um, the, uh, they, they seem to be in, in a similar state that the United States was, for example, maybe back in the, the 50s or, or, or 60s in some ways. Um, for example, um, they don't really have a NASA equivalent. The closest they would come would probably be something called the China National Space uh, Administration, or CNSA, that at least started out to be sort of a basically a keeper of uh, international contracts and programs within the defense industry. Um, there, there appears to be some, uh, some indication that, that they've um, moved into the realm of program management. It's not quite yet there yet uh, in, in terms of one particular program which would be some of the moon some of the moon um, exploration uh, um, programs but the, the one reason why I like to focus on organization is uh, is just the the effect that organizational or bureaucratic competition has within uh, within their, their space program even within the military itself um, the Air Force <clears throat> I can go back to the analogy of where the US Air Force was in the 1950s 1960s the concept of aerospace uh, power, or in Chinese they call it air and space integration, <clears throat> where uh, it, it's it's a buzz term where they you know the air and space integration is the uh, one single domain and, and uh, need to have one organization in charge of, of, of uh, both air and space, the aerospace, um, which of course is the same thing the U.S. Air Force did quite a, uh, quite a while ago. The concept of aerospace that be, you know having that sort of the, the uh, domain of, of the air domain and being able to sort of stretch it out to space gives you. Some uh, authority over, over space spa space assets, but um, but within and of course within the uh, the industry, the R and D and industry, there's going to be natural because they're one of the models that the, their space industry uh, appears to, to have is, is U.S. space industry, you know, that the Lockheed Martin uh, sort of thing. So you're going to have competition and advocacies within individual academies uh, for for their, their for their uh, for their program. So you have that dynamic uh, as well. Um, but in terms of it, there, there, at one time there was an overall, uh, what they call it, expert, a, a leading group, a state council a leading group on, on space issues. But whether or not uh, that exists today is, isn't clear, but that's a valid, uh, valid point. Very quick on the A-side issue. Uh, of course, that, uh, supposedly the one that, that hit was the third in, in a series. There's so many tests that go on. Out of these different different locations and sort of schedule whether or not it was the uh, whether or not exactly what test this was was this a design 
finalization or something like critical design test was something that industry drove. Uh, and, and then they contract out with the general armaments department. Or was it was something that GED, the PLA drove, and that, that didn't coordinate. That's to me, it's within this sort of bureaucratic structure. It, it's easy to see why it would not have been coordinated fully, particularly given the number of tests that go on, the number of missing tests that go on is just incredible. Um, but um, anyway, I'll turn that back over to you. Sure. Uh, the Chinese also bemoan the many actors. Uh, that play a role in, in China's space enterprise. So you see that their writings on the uh, 2008 Wenchen earthquake, they said that one of, the, one of the issues with bringing space to the rescue efforts was that there are just too many organizations playing a role, and so there was no one coordinating body there that they could go to and say, okay, you know, where do we get the satellite data? You know, where do we get the communications uh, 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 capability? So, you know, that, that took a while to set up. So there's nothing, it didn't, from, from their comments, it seems that there's not, you know, it, it, it's a difficult thing to, uh, to, to get to. So, and, and, and following up uh, on what Mark was saying about the Air Force, so you, you have organizations like the Air Force saying, see, we have this problem. There are too many organizations involved with space, and there's no head. And uh, the Air Force actually is probably the ideal service to take over the space enterprise. And so what you have then is, you know, the bureaucratic fighting then about, you know, which service should actually uh, control space assets. Jim and then Tiffany. No, no, no. Good question. Uh, I don't have the answer, uh, but I probably have some clues. Uh, in ex for example, in the case of the DARPA NASA uh, debris removal conference here, it was organized by DARPA, which is a government, a, you know, a DoD entity, and uh, for them to, uh, unfortunately, the way they did it, well, they 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 were required to pre-screen and clear everybody that was attending the conference, uh, and so that presents a hurdle for anybody, a Chinese national, to come and to attend. Uh, not to mention, they also have to get a visa to come to the U.S. in order to be able to attend the conference if they're not already here. Uh, so th you see that a lot with events organized in the United States. The, it's not only the, the travel times and the cost, but obtaining a visa in time to attend the conference crops up over and over again uh, as a hurdle. Um, and then you know the issues of if a U.S. government entity, particularly a DOD entity, is organizing something, that presents some additional security challenges. Uh, as far as the others, uh, I think you know Europe. They were very focused on Europe, uh, and you know, you know there were. I was one of the only few Americans that were there, so it wasn't that they. I think they deliberately excluded China, but uh, it just it was wasn't in their sight picture. I think that's instructive as well. Thanks, Jim Wolf Reuters. I wanted to get the panel's uh, views of the news contained in a, a draft report by the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Uh, it said that um, 
uh, an Air Force briefing uh, uh, specified that at least two U.S. Uh, climate monitoring and terrain mapping satellites have been interfered with in, I think, 2007, 2008, and it laid uh, at the door of the Chinese military as the most likely suspect. Um, I, I wonder if any of you have any more insight into those uh, reported incidents and uh, whether you also have come to the conclusion, any such conclusion, that uh, the Chinese uh, would have been involved, were most likely involved, and what is the significance of it in terms of what you're talking about? Um, Let's take a crack at that one first. I'll, I'll make a couple of comments and I'll leave it open to to others. Um, I have not seen, I don't think the report's published yet, and if it hasn't, I have not seen it yet. I think that the the claim was that uh, somebody gained access, uh, full command and control access to these two satellites. Uh, I did not see the claim that they were actually disrupted or interfered with, uh, interfered with their mission in any way, but it was more of an access claim. Um, I, I would make two points. One is that it apparently came through Svalbard which is a very, very heavily used ground station for polar orbiting satellites. Uh, and so there are a lot of people using it, a lot of people that have access to it. So the, 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 the potential people that you know, could have been doing it is probably a fairly long list. Um, the second thing I would say is that they're fairly old satellites. I believe they were launched in 1999, which means they're probably designed in the 10 years before that. Uh, and I question, I'm not, I don't know specifics, but I would wonder whether or not they were even designed with cybersecurity and encryption protocols even in mind. Uh, so uh, as far as the, uh, the challenge in, in, in getting access to such command and control, I'm not even sure how difficult that would, it, would be. Anything else? I'm not aware of it either. Okay. I'd just say real briefly, it shouldn't be difficult at all if it's not built in in a very robust way to start with. And for that kind of satellite, it probably wouldn't be. But I'll give you another example of um, something that just happened recently, and I'll try and, re relatively recently, I'll try and keep it short to give you an idea of how easy this can be, which is that um, we, after the in two, late 2003, early 2004, sometime in there, the Voice of America wanted to set up a, a high-frequency broadcast into Iran to do uh, convince the Iranians of the wonders of our our civilization and um, and the means by which they chose to do that are fairly traditional which is to broadcast the signal via satellite to the HF transmitter that they'd set up in um, in uh, in Iraq and the way they, the satellites they chose were the ones I was talking about before include the ones that you know in many cases we do lots of really sensitive stuff with and um, the Iranians jammed the signal from uh, Cuba and uh, shut it down. And of course, we just sent it by fiber cable across the ocean and solved the problem that way. So they're still hearing about the superiority of our civilization. But, <laughs> but uh, the, it wasn't hard for them to shut that signal down when it was going by a commercial satellite. Mm. Okay. Question in the front? Should I wait? Yeah, could you please? <laughs> Um, Frank DiMantino, Integrity Applications. Um, I wanted to return to the previous uh, line of questioning. Um, if you look back, even the way we've treated international diplomacy, and I think in the military, I would, I would make the contention that we treat space as special, you know, a, a special venue, the 1967 Space Treaty, different things that we do. And um, Mark, you had mentioned that, you know, the Chinese do a lot of missile tests and do a lot of different things. 
Um, I find it odd that I think this is an exemplar that shows that they don't treat space as special, you know, as a different venue. Um, it's and it's interesting too that as China rises, um, they can they want to play as a big boy, you know, they want to be a big player, but they continually screw up. You know, the EP3 incident because they don't have a national security council is is a yeah, an example of that. The the ASAT test where they didn't really think through the duplicity of the debris and their, their, their points in the UN. I'd love to get everyone's comment on this. So, um, and, and I think the United States may have faced this a little bit too with the Russians in the way that we thought about nuclear weapons versus the way the, the Soviet Union thought about nuclear weapons as just a bigger bomb versus you know something special. So how do we, we're, we're kind of compromised by this idea that we think space is special. How do we get past that or how do we evangelize that to the rest of the world so that, you know, space security can be more sustainable, more, you know, more tractable, I guess. <laughs> Let me sort of focus on that space debris, um, space debris issue. Um, in 2005, there was a major uh, initiative launched within, uh, uh, in China, led by the China Academy of Sciences, uh, uh, to be able to, uh, on the space debris mitigation, mitigation issue. They, they've actually tracked space debris. Uh, matter of fact, I went to one site in 1992, a long time ago, um, where, they, that, where they track and they, they catalog uh, space debris. That, that just, I guess is a, uh, thousands of uh, objects that are out there. And so they've, they've been aware of the space debris issue, significant uh, uh, investment in, in per, sort of prioritizing the, the mitigation, uh, the space debris mitigation issue in 2005. Uh, a center set up for space debris mitigation, and uh, again, this Nanjing Purple Mountain Observatory. Under the China Academy of Sciences, and that was 2005. And then being aware, at least with this in this one sliver of, of, of the governmental structure, being, being aware of the issue of space debris, and then suddenly having basically blowing a weather satellite to smithereens in space. I, I don't know how many objects that that created, but uh, certainly didn't help things. You just have to, have to. I do have to wonder they sometimes if their own they're their own worst enemy because one side uh, probably I mean is aware of some of the, the problems, the political problems that they that they would create. For example, MOFA, they're the ones who have to sort of take all the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has to take all the, 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 the political heat. Um, and just, just sometimes wonder if they, uh, if, if they, 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 they're their own worst enemy sometimes just by not coordinating with the, amongst themselves. Um, so it, it's an issue that, uh, uh, again, getting a good handle on who's responsible for what, um, and even bringing them into international uh, dialogues, uh, who you go to is going to be important. For example, if you go to, if you go to the wrong agency and for your initial sort of proposal on, on something, these, some of these guys may not get along. And you know, if they go out and whatever, you should have gone to another organization that's within being the lead. For example, space debris. The organization to go to, I would imagine, would be Academy of Sciences, and let them sort of, if they want to participate, be the advocacy for it within the broader government. But if you go to the, uh, other other guys, they, they could, um, yeah, it just may not happen because it gets stuck down in bureaucratic. Uh, just organizational problems, political differences, personalities, just uh, that whole thing. But, uh. Uh, I guess I would argue that the Chinese do consider space uh, as special and important. I think you, you, you have to just look back at, uh, what is the September uh, launch of the Tiangong-1, their uh, 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 space station, which was... Uh, still is unmanned, but if you looked at who showed up for the launching, it was it was the who's who of the Chinese leadership. I think all of maybe except one member of the Politburo uh, uh, 
uh, attended the launch either in Beijing or at Jochen. Um, all of the CMC members, with the exception one, the, the uh, commander of the Air Force, which is very interesting, um, uh, 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 showed up in one form or another, either in Beijing or at Jochen. Um, and so, you know, this involved no no astronauts. Yet, uh, Hu Jintao was there, uh, uh, was in Beijing. Uh, uh, Wen Jiaobao, the premier, was uh, uh, was uh, at Zhou Chen. Uh, you know, the next in line, uh, uh, Xi Jinping was was in Beijing. So, there's very high level support uh, uh, for the space program. And also, you know, going back to to the writings that that you know that I'm reading is. Um, you know, there is a great deal of emphasis placed on space in military operations. Also, you know, just uh, in society, you know, generally about how space can uh, improve China's comprehensive national power. Um, and you see, uh, often you see arguments about how space can help out China politically, economically, technologically, and militarily. Hmm. Hmm. I would just add a, a question and, and one brief point. The question would be how much of their approach to space is a function of them studying us and, and how much of it is driven by you know their own perspectives. So in other words, if, if, if we see space as special in our doctrine and our approach to it and they're reading our doctrine and, and looking at how we developed and learning from that, uh, is that going to, you know, does that drive them to view it in the same way eventually? Uh, I think that's, a, that's an open question. Um, the other comment I would make is you, you started talking about you know, international engagement. Um, I would also you know, just point out that it also depends on who in the U.S. is doing the international engagement. For example, you know, STRATCOM is the lead for a lot of the space situation awareness data sharing efforts and cooperative efforts. Uh, and that, uh, that sends signals whether or not we intend to or not. Uh, that the same entity that you know controls our nuclear weapons also is you know being our international our lead for international cooperation on SSA, uh, and you know and within China the PLA controls SSA, uh, so you now have two entities Stratcom and the PLA that don't necessarily get along the best of friends, and they're also the ones that have to get along in order to have cooperation on this particular issue, uh, so I would throw that into the mix as well. Right there. I'm Mark Render. I'm executive director of the GOI Foundation. GOI is a satellite imagery company that owns high-resolution Earth imaging systems. And in about 14 months, they're going to launch a commercial imaging system with a ground resolution of 13 inches. Uh, is there any, under current U.S. policy, however, uh, the company is required to fuzz up or degrade the imagery to uh, half meter ground resolution before making it a sale uh, for sale publicly. But uh, at high resolutions, what is the status of China's, maybe Mark knows this, because you mentioned uh, quarter, uh, quarter meter resolution of some of their potentially future systems. What are their resolutions of their current civil Earth observation systems? And what could be planned for civil commercial systems? Hmm. I'm just very. I, I've seen. I, I don't think we. Some of the public briefing. I, I've seen uh, two meters, maybe in terms of electro optical. I've seen references to two meters or something like that. I um, for, the, for some of the commercial systems, um, not much better than that. But um, I don't have a good handle on what their uh, 
the current, uh, like for example, the Seabers, uh, the shot of Brazil Earth Resource Team mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the, uh, that one, I'm not, I, I think it's two meters, but I could be wrong. Um, it could be better, but uh, uh, on that t- uh, 0.25 meter resolution goal, that was, uh, appeared to be sort of somewhat of an aspirational goal uh, by uh, one of the uh, designers within their Shot Academy Space Technology. Um, uh, on the licensing issue, the other part about the licensing issue or uh, export, um, trying to let somebody else address that part. I know that the Seabers was, I think, three meters way back when, um, and that the Chinese, I, I believe, I'd have to go back and check, but I think they were shooting for a goal of one meter, um, but where they actually are right now is difficult to tell. But I would, I would say on the export control issue that um, you know, China is wanting to become a major space power. Um, its uh, space industry has the goal by 2015 to becoming a major uh, aerospace industry on, along the lines of uh, uh, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, uh, uh, EADS. Um, and, so, and, and China is uh, taking a stronger approach to the commercialization of their space program. And so I, I would not be surprised if, if China were to get more into the commercial mm-hmm. imagery uh, field. Um, you, you see that with their Huanjing satellites, which I think have, what, 30-meter resolution, something like that. Um, you know, it's not, it's not that the Yaogan satellite is, is their higher end, which they don't publicize the, the resolution. The Huanjing has a 30-meter resolution, and they've been very proactive with... Um, uh, 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 loaning those capabilities out for disaster mitigation. So I think when uh, Australia had its uh, forest fires, they were helping the Australians out with imagery. And um, uh, but you could see where that you know where that capability could uh, where they could start selling that capability at some point in the future. Hi, um, it's a Marcus, space that I share at the Embassy of France. Is there any initiative to invite? China to cooperate on space exploration as it has been done between the US and Russia could improve dialogues over other issues. So is there any topic on that? I I would say that there is some uh, that's sort of been like discussed, but there's currently legal restrictions that prevent NASA from doing that. Uh, there's specific language uh, in the most recent uh, authorization act uh, that prevents NASA from spending any money on cooperation with China even discussing it. Uh, so, uh, for the moment, until that changes, um, you know, I, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, there is the debate over whether or not such cooperation falls into the realm of foreign policy or not. Uh, and thus, is it actually under Congress's purview to limit that? Uh, because foreign policy originally seen under the Constitution is the, the, under the sole direction of the President. Um, that is a debate currently going on. Uh, but China is very uh, um, open to international cooperation. Um, you see that they, uh, that they are part of the Asia-Pacific Space Cooperi- Cooperation Organization, which is based in Beijing. Um, and so they are sort of the de facto head of that. Um, they have uh, what appears to be extensive cooperation with uh, the Ukraine. Um, uh, they're, they're 
you know, they participated with Brazil on satellites. Um, even the Tiangong, or actually the Shenzhou 8 that was just launched, has some experiments with, uh, with, uh, 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 with Germany. Um, and even, you know, uh, and for the uh, uh, TTNC system for uh, 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 tracking the, uh, the Tiangong, uh, they've uh, set up stations with Brazil and France, and then recently with Australia, which I which I thought was very interesting. So uh, uh, the Chinese, on their part, are, are very interested in international cooperation. I guess I actually would like to build off on that. Um, let's say export control was not a concern. Um, <laughs> you know, theoretically, it could be possible. Um, pigs would fly. the Chinese be interested in cooperating with the United States specifically on space? Or has that ship sailed, in a manner of speaking? In, in, in terms of, I guess, sort of defining what space cooperation would be, there, there's this, for example, that the NASA sort of things are cooperating on a man on, for example, on a space station or, or some aspect of, of space exploration. Uh, there's also the issue, it's not necessarily cooperation, but it's just it's a business issue, uh, which is, for example, the sale of uh, U.S. satellites to, uh, uh, to customers within within China, or the uh, or the um, contracting for use of um, um, co contracting for uh, launch of satellites for any customer, whether it's U.S. or, or international, use of Chinese um, uh, launch vehicles, um, which was uh, was a major part of the, the space cooperation effort back in the late '80s, all the way up to about '95, '96 timeframe. That went by the wayside after a few uh, um, satellite uh, uh, mishaps and um, l lapses in the technology security control uh, program that went on. But um, you know, if export control um, on that issue of, uh, of um, exports of, of satellites or use of Chinese launch vehicles, um, you know, one question: what, I mean, do they even have, is there even a market in, in China for U.S. satellites uh, anymore, or have they surpassed what so what we could provide uh, commercially in terms of what they've been doing with their Particularly military satellites. The, the, there was two military communication satellites they already um, uh, developed and, and, and launched. But on the, um, in I, I would imagine that they. Uh, I mean, there's a certain amount of status. I mean, there's not just a certain amount. There's a significant degree of prestige and status that 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 comes into play whenever you're dealing with the you know, the, the big boys in, uh, in in space on the international front. And so. Um, it uh, there's a significant degree of prestige that that would come along with that, which I think is a source of the uh, legislative uh, restrictions on, um, on on NASA by um, within the House of Representatives. Um, having to do with, I mean, the, the the debate that goes in is, is do you do you reward um, do you reward a, a spacefaring uh, nation basically using the, that leverage of, of space to be able to. Uh, um, at least make a statement about, for example, human rights records and, and things like this. Um, whether or not space warrants that or whether you can target something else, you can also start a null-to-null relationship. Uh, mm -hmm. so you can target a number, number of things to be able to sort of uh, make a point. But um, I think in general, on the political front, I think China would love to be able to cooperate on, in certain areas that may or may not have much of a technology aspect, but certainly from a political perspective, it gives them sort of a, a seat, a, a place to the mat um, <laughs> or, or, or a seat at the table uh, in terms of um, on the international front and the prestige front. Mm -hmm. 
an article in China Space News, which is the official newspaper of China's space industry, stated after the uh, Tiangong launch that uh, one benefit of successfully having launching and operating a space station was that it would make a make China a better partner for participation in the International Space Station. But I thought was an interesting uh, uh, take on it. Um, so it seems that at least some elements of uh, China's space enterprise are, um, you know, uh, would be open to cooperation with the United States. Um, and, and if there weren't export control laws, that, um, you know, of course, I think China would be very much open to all sorts of technical cooperation. You see it already happening with Ukraine, Russia. Um, uh, you know, even even in the commercial sphere, you see all sorts of joint ventures being uh, started in China. Um, uh, you know, if you look at uh, you know even Airbus and in, in the aerospace realm, aerospace uh, uh, there there's lots of cooperation with the China C919 uh, airliner. Uh, there's a, a large number of countries uh, and companies that are participating with China uh, on that uh, program. So, uh, yeah, I could see that, that China would be open to lots of technical cooperation if they were allowed. I would uh, add a caveat, that's to reiterate a point um, made by, I think, both Dean Chang and Greg Kolaki, is that it all, part of it depends upon how the cooperation is pitched. If it's pitched as, oh, we'd like to help you, it's going to be, it's come across very badly. Uh, they're very proud of their space capabilities, they're very proud of what they've accomplished, uh, and that they want to be approached as, a, as an equal partner and not as someone that needs help from the United States to accomplish their goals. Uh, and I think that, that would play a major role in, in any particular cooperation. You need to add over? Oh, I'm fine. Okay. Um, I hate to do this because there's obviously still a lot of interest, but we have been told we get out of the room fairly quickly. So um, I would um, thank you all for being here. Uh, please join me in thanking our panel for a fascinating discussion. We have audio up on our website for anyone who was unable to attend, and for the love of God, please grab a sandwich on the way out. Thank you again. <laughs>